If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. As a homeless trans teen, Cece McDonald suffered a lifetime of hardships. But when she was charged with murder for simply defending herself, she became a folk hero. Tonight, in a very special interview with Steve Pride, she shares her truth about that night racism, mass incarceration, and trans liberation. Plus, comedian, raconteur, novelist, performing artist, gay rights activist, sexual outlaw, and chairman of the International Order of Sodomites, Justin Sayre, will be with us live in studio. And we'll hear from Maddie McLaughlin, McLaughlin, excuse me, (laughs) about the first ever Pride celebration at Venice Beach. But first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Michael LeBeau. And I'm Jessica Andrea. With NewsRap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending August 13, 2016. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Belize on August 10 overturned the part of the Central American nation's criminal code that outlaws carnal intercourse against the order of nature, which includes private consensual adult same-gender sex. Belize, a country of some 380,000 people on the Caribbean coast, neighboring Mexico and Guatemala, has had the law in place since its days as a British colony. Chief Justice Kenneth Benjamin decided that Criminal Code Section 53 contravenes guarantees of personal dignity and privacy in the Belize Constitution and that it violates constitutional guarantees of equal treatment for all people under the law. Benjamin's lengthy ruling noted that the court could consider, but could not act on, prevailing views of the societal majority particularly religious views, that stigmatize men who have sex with men, whether or not those men identify as gay. He noted that decriminalization would help accelerate the fight against HIV-AIDS, especially among those men who often don't get tested or treated. For Caleb Orozco, a Belizean gay man and prominent human rights activist, this week's ruling was a successful culmination of the lawsuit he originally filed in his nation's highest court in May 2013. For Morris Tomlinson, an openly gay lawyer fighting a similar law in Jamaica, the Belize ruling could be highly persuasive in overturning such laws in the entire region. Recently elected Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte went on a rant this week against Philip Goldberg, the U.S. ambassador to the country, during a televised speech to the nation's military elite, calling him bakla, which some say is crude slang for gay and a son of a bitch. 
Goldberg had criticized then-presidential candidate Duterte for crude comments he made as mayor of Davos City about the brutal rape and murder of Jacqueline Hamill, an Australian missionary. What a pity, he said at the time, she was so beautiful. The mayor should have been first. The Australian ambassador was equally critical, but for whatever reason, Duterte focused on Goldberg, accusing him of interfering in our national elections. He went on to clinch the presidency by almost 40% of the vote. Amplifying those charges during his speech this week, the president accused Goldberg of meddling during the elections, giving statements here and there. He was not supposed to do that. The Obama administration is not amused. The Filipino charge d'affaires, Patrick Chuasoto, has reportedly been summoned to the State Department for an official rebuke. Goldberg has never publicly come out. In 2014, however, a year after he was sworn in, he hosted an LGBT pride reception at the U.S. ambassador's residence outside Manila. So he's at least an ally. In other news, a U.S. district court heard a challenge on August 12th to the Obama administration's guidelines on the fair treatment of transgender students in federally funded public schools and universities. Lawyers representing Texas and a dozen other states charged that they force school districts to mix the sexes in intimate areas. The guidelines tell public school districts that they must allow trans students to use the bathrooms and locker facilities that conform to their gender identity or face the possible loss of millions of dollars in federal funding. Austin Nimux, Associate Deputy for Special Litigation for Texas, told U.S. District Court Judge Reed O'Connor that, Congress made it very clear that the sexes could be segregated, male or female. These are the two sexes. Republican Attorney General of Texas Ken Paxton, who was not present at the hearing, filed the suit on behalf of the state's Tiny Herald Independent School District. While the district has never knowingly had a transgender student, Paxton said they want to preemptively ensure that the district isn't punished for simply following common sense policies. The lawsuit asks the court to issue an injunction against enforcement of the guidelines while the case works its way up the judicial ladder. Benjamin Berwick, a Justice Department attorney, argued that they have identified no action being taken against them, no threat of action being taken against them. O'Connor, who was appointed by George W. Bush, did not immediately decide the issue, but said that he would try to rule as soon as possible. Rest assured, he said, I'm working on it. The other plaintiffs in the lawsuit include Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Tennessee, Utah, Wisconsin, the Arizona Department of Education, and far-right Maine Republican Governor Paul LePage. Mississippi's Republican Governor Phil Bryant suffered another legal setback this week. The Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals on August 12th refused to lift a lower court order banning implementation of the Hospitality State's draconian religious freedom law, which allows both private and public workers to refuse to serve people who don't comport with their sincerely held religious beliefs or convictions. The law clearly targets civil marriage equality and would allow county clerks in Mississippi to refuse to issue licenses to gay and lesbian couples. HB 1523 specifically protects three beliefs or convictions that civil marriage is only between one man and one woman, that only married couples should engage in sexual intercourse, and that a person's gender is determined at birth and is immutable. U.S. District Judge Carlton Reeves found the law to be unconstitutional because it favors one religious ideology over others and creates inequality for LGBT people. He issued his order against implementing the law just days before it was to go into effect on July 1st. 
Aside from refusing to lift the stay, the Fifth Circuit also denied Bryant's request for an expedited appeals process. In dismissing Mississippi's original argument for a stay and reiterating that he believed the plaintiffs would ultimately succeed in their challenge to the law, Reeves did not mince words. Issuing a marriage license to a gay couple, he wrote, is not like being forced into armed combat or to assist with an abortion. And finally, infamously homophobic Alabama Supreme Court Chief Justice Roy Moore may be on the way out, again. A state judicial panel on August 8th refused to dismiss an ethics complaint against him and set a September 28th hearing date on accusations that Moore urged all 68 Alabama probate judges to deny civil marriage licenses to same-gender couples, thus defying the U.S. Supreme Court's June 2015 marriage equality ruling. Chief Judge Michael Joyner of the Alabama Court of the Judiciary, a state panel that disciplines judges, refused dueling requests to either dismiss the complaint against Moore outright or immediately remove him from office. The panel of the nine judges will decide whether Moore violated judicial ethics and, if so, what punishment he should face. Moore was removed from office by the same court in 2003 for refusing to tear down a Ten Commandments monument he'd installed outside the state judicial building, though he was later reinstated. He could now be ousted as Alabama Supreme Court Chief Justice for a second time. That's News Wrap for the week ending August 13, 2016. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm Michael Lebeau. And I'm Jessica Andrea. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, uh, (laughs) iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Convicted of second-degree manslaughter, transgender activist Cece McDonald was sentenced to 41 months in a men's prison after a racist and transphobic attack against her turned deadly. Amidst large-scale outcry and support from the queer community, she was released in January 2014 after serving 19 months of her sentence. She recently sat down with Steve Pride to tell her story. Hi, I'm Krishan McDonald, a.k.a. Cece McDonald. I grew up in the south side of Chicago. I was born and raised there. With my family, it was not okay to be someone other than cis and straight. It was heavy Christian Bible thumpings. That really affected the way that I saw myself, and I began to have these conflicting ideas of who I was, even though I knew that I wasn't like everybody else. And I was really afraid being audacious around my identity would make people want to lash back against me. And when we see violence towards trans women now and then, that's evident that as a trans person or as a queer or gay or lesbian person, fighting back sometimes ensues some type of harsher retaliation. Those were the type of things that I was thinking about and shouldn't have to be thinking about as a seven or eight year old, but knowing that people picked on me for a certain reason. And if I defended that, would they literally like kill me? That was something that I thought about and that was instilled through Christian values in the family is like going back to Exodus and talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and things like that. And literally having those type of conversations with my family that will traumatize me as a kid and put me in this really dark space. 
as I got older and I started to come into myself more, for a point of time, I pretended to be straight and had a girlfriend. And then I secretly told my girlfriend, I'm gay, but don't tell anybody. This was before I knew other identities outside of these cis identities. And people don't understand growing up as a trans person, having people just tell you that you're gay and you're like, no, it's something way different than being gay and not knowing what that was. But that was the only way I could identify. So most of the people that I associated in my life that I told, I told them that I was gay because I didn't have any other identity to have. Where did you learn there were other possibilities? I don't think I really knew of any other trans people until I got around like 16, 17. At this point, I had moved entirely out of the house. Before then, I was running away and being brought back. And What age did you leave home? I left home at the age of 13. And I was homeless. I was doing what I had to do. I turned to survival sex work just to make sure that I can feed myself, dating older men because I knew that there was an incentive with that and just doing what I could to make it to the next day at least. I met somebody named Dee Dee <laughs> who was a trans woman on the west side of Chicago, which is where I was spending a lot of my time. I was just amazed because I just saw this beautiful woman. And when she saw me, she was just like, you're really pretty. And I was like, thank you. And then she was like, so are you trans or are you transitioning? And I was like, what does that mean? And she pretty much told me like, oh, you don't know. And then she told me she was a trans woman. And I was like, wait, wait. She was the first trans person that I have ever encountered in my whole entire life. Take me back to the night of June 5th, 2011. What was going on? Well, me and some friends, we were walking. Oh, we were walking to a grocery store. We had first been approached by a cop who said that there was a complaint of us being too loud. We were walking down the street. How are we too loud? It was a Saturday night, and Schooners was like a couple of feet away. Schooners is a bar. Yeah, Schooners is where everything happened in front of. Once you get to Schooners, beyond that point, it's nothing but businesses and bars and restaurants and things like that. And I was going to the grocery store. Me and my boyfriend, we kind of trailed back to like talk about some things. So that left three people walking ahead of us. Probably five minutes after we started talking, my friends were walking, and then they began to walk back. Then I seen the other party yelling at them. I couldn't hear really what was being said until I got closer. When I did get closer, reality set in for me in a way that I wasn't expecting it, especially the derogatory statements that were being made towards them. Things like, uh, you nigger babies, you need to go back to Africa, you don't belong here, you're nothing but men with dresses and we trick people and we're chicks with dicks and we only dress like this to trick men and some other things. I think you can get the point from those, you know, Yeah. At this point in my life, I was just trying to be more rational, less violent. The whole time that I was being homeless and 
up until that point, which at that time I had already moved into my apartment. And you were in school, right? Yeah. Strange fashion? Yes. And I felt like I was in a pretty content place in my life. I wouldn't say I was the happiest, but I was definitely content to the point where I knew that I was comfortable. I now have my place, so I can work on fixing my place up, and I was allowing some of my friends to stay there so they can get on their feet, and I was just, you know, a little house mom or whatever. (laughs) And I had to get some cat food, and my cousin wanted to get some food because she wanted to cook for the people of the house. My friends Star and Zay, they wanted to go to the 90s. I'm pretty sure you know about the 90s downtown Minneapolis. Yeah. And (laughs) so we all were headed the same way. And my boyfriend even decided to come with me. But back to the incident itself, uh, argument kind of ensued after that because once my boyfriend heard what was being said, he got really upset and I was like, babe, let's just go. Like, it's not important. These people are clearly drunk. They were drinking outside of the bar, which by law is illegal. And also there's a history of racist attacks there. When I was in jail, I've met some men of color who have been to that bar and was like, yes, I've had similar experiences of being called a nigger, being kicked out of the bar for retaliating against the racism and things like that. So had I known that information before, I would have never. And we're not talking Coke cups. They were outside with bottles. They were outside with glassware that became important. Yes, very important. This is Steve Pride, and I'm talking to Cece McDonald. Tell me about getting hit. Molly Flaherty, who was the person who initially attacked me, had a glass tumbler that she still had liquor in. That's how she caught me off guard. I was this arguing, it's pointless and let's just go. Again, I'm trying to be the rational one. The last words I can remember her saying is, I can take all of you bitches on. She threw her drink in my face. Then she smashed her glass in my face. I couldn't see what her next move was because once she threw the liquor in my eyes, it was burning. And then I started to feel like this really, really, really sharp, stinging pain. And I'm like, this isn't just my eyes. I knew she hit me, but I didn't know that she hit me with something. I was getting lightheaded and like the way that she hit me, it's a scar that's still there. I had to get 12 stitches in my face. And then I just got attacked. They all attacked me. She attacked me. She was grabbing me by my hair. She was trying to yank me to the ground. And from like dance and other like cheerleading, one thing I learned was how to plant my feet. And so she couldn't pull me down to the ground. So some of the other people tried to jump in and help her. And then that's when my friends and family jumped in. And it turned into a melee, as they say. Mind you, there were people literally standing around watching the whole fight. There were witnesses because there were people who gave testimony to the investigators. So to have these people just stand around and see this happen, to have been enjoying these people attacking us, then people from inside the bar was coming out and challenging us. And I told this to the investigators. There were people who weren't even connected to that group who was trying to fight us and didn't care that I was bleeding, didn't care that I was injured. One person even tried to grab me from the driver's side of their vehicle while they're driving past after the fight had broken up. 
so many components of that story that were kind of left out that people don't understand why I was in a state of mind that I was, then began to become outnumbered. And that's why they left before I did, because they were just like, Cece, come on. And they knew that it was starting to get serious and that all of these people could attack us. I'm still dealing with the pain of what just happened to me. I was just not in my right headspace. I was dizzy. My eyes were burning. My face was in such an excruciating pain. I never felt a pain like that. I'm trying to run. And then they began to scream, Cece, come on. And at the same time, Cece turned around and I see Dean and he's coming after me. And I'm trying to walk backwards, but trying to get as close to them as possible. And it just seemed like they were so, so far away. This is Steve Pride, and I'm talking to Cece McDonald. Where were the police then? The police still haven't been called. And mind you, I just told you about how the police stopped us earlier for a noise complaint. And the police were nowhere to be found. The police station was right across the street. It was just really, really frustrating that nobody was trying to help us. Nobody was trying to stop these people from attacking us. No one even tried to stop Dean from re-pursuing the fight and chasing after me. This person was intentionally trying to get me, and he didn't care how he was going to get me. During the fight, he was literally hurling full beer bottles, and he was aiming for my head. It was frightening. Why wouldn't I be in the state of mind to protect myself, especially after seeing this man trying to do serious damage to me? These aren't empty beer bottles. These are full beer bottles, and that's scary to think of how much damage that would do to me. You really didn't have a weapon with you. You had your fashion right, person. Right, exactly. Scissors in your and, purse. I, and I hate that the way that the media portrayed it as in if I had like a butcher knife in my purse and that I was this crazed murderer that they finally called. I'm no serial killer. I did what any person would do in a situation like that was defend themselves. Mind you, I'm only 5'7". This man was like six. Three, six, four, a good 220, 230. How can I fight him? I just been smashed in the face with a cup. I've been jumped by a group of people. How am I going to defend myself at this time where I'm just feeling dizzy? I'm not in a place to be fighting anyone. He's not calming down. No, he wasn't calming down. And somebody even made a statement about how he was shuffling his feet like he was a boxer. Like, I remember all of that. I remember him trying to, like, knock my block off and him threatening me and a lot of the language that he used that wasn't allowed in court. Him calling me a black bitch and him steady calling me bitches and you know, even to the point when he got stabbed and he said, you stabbed me, bitch. And I didn't think that a person that was seriously harmed would say something to me like that. And that's why I didn't know that the stab wound was as serious as it was. Because who says something like, you stabbed me, bitch, after they get stabbed? And I just was like, yes, I did. Because I had to protect myself, and now that I think about it, I don't take any of that back. They tried to make me feel bad for saying, yes, I did, after he just said, you stabbed me, bitch. Well, did he run into the scissors, or did you... Once he got into arm's length of me, he grabbed my hair, trying to yank me down, so it could have been the way our bodies was positioned. I couldn't see. He had my head down. I didn't even know that I had cut him till he said it. It wasn't intentional. I warned him that I had the scissors. When I initially pulled them out, I said, I have a weapon. 
weapon and I will use it. And he still decided to attack me. So it's not my fault that I decided to protect myself. Well, when the police came, you were not you didn't run. You were across the street in the yeah, parking lot. Yeah, I crossed the street. I didn't, I didn't know at that point what had happened because we were in a part of the parking lot where you can't see anything. But it was only probably 100 feet away from the bar. How did they treat you when they came up? The first thing that they did when they got out their car was drew their guns. Then they handcuffed me. They put me in the back of the squad car. Mind you, I'm still bleeding. Did they ever acknowledge you as a victim? No, never, not once. They had a scenario already in their mind they would yeah. fit you into. I want to jump ahead and talk about prison mm-hmm. because there's so many issues involved with that right now in the trans community, the black community, just in life, and you've become a real advocate. So tell me about your prison experience. I got sentenced June 4, 2012. And you took a plea deal. Yes, I took a plea deal because at that point, I just figured that there was no way that I was going to beat murder charges in a jury that was majority white. It was kind of hard knowing what was going to happen to me. But I tell people all the time, like, I'd rather have dead 41 months than 41 years. And when I initially got to prison, the first thing they did was threw me in solitary confinement. Again, for my prison's policies. For your own protection. Yeah, prison's policies around trans and queer and gender. And we're not talking Orange is New Black here. You went to a men's prison. Exactly. But it wouldn't matter what prison I went to, that I would still endure the same type of treatments. And it's because it's based off of gender binary that I was going to still have to deal with the racism or the sexism or the violence. If I wasn't going to get shanked by a white person in the men's prison, I could have got shanked by a white person in the women's prison, right? There would have been no safety for me in either space. It doesn't matter what prison I went to. I hate that I had to experience that, and so and 2.2 million people have to experience it, the prison population in general. So You've become a real prison abolitionist? Is yes, that- abolitionist. I'm very against the existence of prisons. You have those that believe in prison reform, and I'm totally against that also. (laughs) I just feel like there are ways in which we can handle a society that doesn't capitalize because it's all about capitalism that doesn't capitalize off the bodies of those who have been criminalized and demonized and prosecuted in a way in which they keep continuing to be put into these systems. I want to jump to your release. You had so much support to get you out of there. Uh Did that surprise you how big the movement became? It did, actually. I didn't understand why people cared about my story. I knew that there were so many cases like minds of women who went through what I went through. And also at that time was when the Trayvon Martin case happened and when the Marissa Alexander case happened. People made comparisons of our cases and really seeing how certain laws are only beneficial for certain people in society. I think that's what drove people even harder was that they were seeing these things in the public gaze and people were beginning to see the system Some people say it's broken, and it's not broken. It's doing exactly what it's created to do, to target the marginalized people, to target people of color, to target the LGBTQI community. But as far as this, for me, I I was definitely shocked, knowing that trans women have died because of this, that trans women are in prison right now because of this, 
And why aren't they getting support? I began to have this guilt factor for myself, knowing that I had all of this support and that so many people like me don't get it. And I think that's what also drives me to do the work that I do because I want to be the voice for those who can't have a voice, who's behind bars and can't have that voice or have that platform or have that support. Thank you. This has been a conversation with C.C. McDonald. She was released from prison in 2014 after serving 19 months of her 41-month sentence. Today, Cece is not just a survivor, she's a leader. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. A documentary about Cece's ordeal called Free Cece, directed by Jacques Garris and produced by trans actress Laverne Cox, who you know from Orange is the New Black, is currently on the film festival circuit. And you can find more info at freeccdocumentary.com. So self-defense is apparently just for cisgendered straight white men. Pretty much. Because they get away with you it know, all the time. George Zimmerman gets away. And, and appalling amount. Because we have this image of people you know, standing up, but that image is a very yeah. gendered image. But let's change gears here, shall we? Coming up next, we'll have Matthew McLaughlin, who went to partake in Venice Pride and mourns the loss of the classic bar Roosterfish. And here in studio, it's the sparkle of Dorothy Parker and the delivery of Margaret Dumont. It is Justin Serra. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Olympic diver Matthew Mitchum comes from behind. Coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. At the Beijing Games on August 23, 2008, Matthew Mitchum executed a two and a half somersault with two and a half twists, earning the highest scoring dive in Olympic history. Grinning from ear to ear, he ran up into the stands to give his partner, Lachlan Fletcher, a kiss after he won. Mitchum came out three months before his victory in an interview with the Sydney Morning Herald. In fact, Mitchum was the only openly gay man out of 11,028 athletes at the 2008 Summer Olympics and became the second openly gay Olympic diver to win gold behind Greg Louganis in 1984. Mitchum's win came as a surprise since he had been behind until the last round. With his victory, Australia claimed its first diving gold medal in 84 years. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Mike Rutz. Hello, I'm Cece McDonald and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK FM. 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Coming up right now is Maddie McLaughlin's visit to the first Venice Beach Pride. Recently, in response to the closing of the West Side's only gay bar, the Roosterfish, as well as in memoriam to L.A. City Councilman and LGBT family member Bill Rosenthal, the city of Venice held its inaugural gay pride celebration. Hosted by Councilman Mike Bonin, sponsors included Silicon Beach Editions, Snapchat and Google, as well as the Irwin Hotel, and local beachfront restaurant and bar, Danny's, owned by Venice resident Danny Samacow, who opened his doors to the town's LGBT community with Surf's Up Fridays. The event culminated with the lighting of the Venice sign and the colors of the Pride Rainbow, done by trans celebrity Gigi Gorgeous, who pulled the switch. 
Who are you and why are you here tonight? I'm Daniel Savago and I'm part of the Venice community and part of the people who put together Venice Pride. Right on, and as, as owner of Danny's Venice, yes. with the Roosterfish closing, you've kind of stepped up. Yes, actually, you know, with the Roosterfish closing, I was just going to speak about that because Bill Rosendahl said, Daniel, you, we need to keep a place for the community to meet. And essentially, I'll announce tonight that Danny's is going to be that place for the, the community. We're starting with Wednesdays and Fridays nights, uh, doing events those nights, and it will go on into other nights as well. That's fantastic, and what a wonderful tribute to, to Bill. He can, he'll he'll uh, well knowing. Bill, our first gay, openly gay city council person, I only wish he was here tonight. He would be in his element. I think oh, my God. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Well, Danny, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and thanks for yeah, this, for is, this was a thing that was a long time coming. Venice is such a community of diversity and acceptance that we should be celebrating pride. We do celebrate pride literally every day in Venice, but it's nice to do it this way. Thank you so much. Have a great time tonight. This was haphazard. I just kind of found out about it just by perusing around and doing some some disco research, okay? Uh, and then I find out there's a gay pride, the first ever happening in Venice Beach. Venice Beach! Venice, California! That's so, so amazing to hear. It's ironic, you know? It's uh, in response to the roosterfish closing a little bit. Well, and I think people refuse to let go of the word grassroots, you know? I mean, you see what West Hollywood has done and taken, to West, taken West Hollywood to the places where it never used to be. Yeah. It used to belong to the people. Look what we've got. They're, they're right now, as you look around, they're all making it their own. They don't know quite what to do yet, you know? So they're texting everybody. <laughs> It's a good point. However, if you look out there, organization on the dance floor is formed. Exactly. It's the electric boogie. They're making it their own. And I think that is probably the one of the most amazing things that could happen right now. It's kind of a magical moment. Good out for there. us. Nice good to for share us. it with you. A pleasure. A pleasure. Uh, thank thank you. you so much. Who are you and why are you here tonight? Uh, I'm Kelvin and uh, I've uh, been a local in Venice for 10 years. And uh, this is a big deal. Uh, I don't think people in Venice know how big a deal this is to light the Venice lights, the famous Venice lights, in the colors of the gay rainbow. Uh, but it's a big deal, so I'm here to support it. It certainly is. We've done it before in the Christmas colors and a, and a few others, but this is kind of a big step. And it happens right on the heels of the Roosterfish closing after 37 years. Right. Had you ever been there? I've been, to, yeah, I've been to Roosterfish many times, and yeah, it's a it's a good way to um, show that uh, LGBT pride. Uh, affirmative uh, acceptance is still alive and well in Venice. Uh, so it's just another chapter. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Calvin. Who are you and why are you here tonight? Hi, my name is Khadija Murray, and I'm here to enjoy the beach on this awesome day and attend Pride. It's our first Venice Pride. Would you have any high hopes for it? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm really excited to see the sign go up. The, the rainbow collar sign. Yeah. Do we know who's lighting it? Um, no, I don't, actually. It'll be fun to find out. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. No problem. <laughs> Who are you and why are you here? I'm LJ Carrison. I'm here to celebrate Pride Venice Beach, the first one ever, 2016. From what I see so far, I think it might get going a little later, um, but so far the entertainment's um, definitely intriguing. Agreed, agreed. We lost the roosterfish recently. Do you have any favorite memories of the roosterfish? 
I, you know, I have lots of lots of lots of fond memories. I actually came out at the Roosterfish, so it's a, a, my memories all began there as a gay man, and I met my first boyfriend um, ever at the Roosterfish. So lots of fond memories. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hey there, who are you, and why are you here tonight? I'm Jeff. This is Peter. Hi. And we're here because it is Pride season and we're proud of who we are. And at this time, with Trump, it's time to show people what we're made of. Right on. First Venice Pride. Yes. What are you hoping for? Oh, just see a bunch of our friends. Uh, we were big fans of the Rooster Fish, which recently closed. So we're going to be see a bunch of people we know here. I've seen several of them there, myself included. Who are you and why are you here? I am a horny and I'm here because I want to shake my ass. Right on. Are you excited about the first Pride in Venice? Yes. I'm like a hash stripper. I used to be a porn star, so yes. There you go. Thank you so much. I love it all. <laughs> Who are you and why are you here tonight? This is Eric Brown. I'm with the Rock Club Foundation. This one goes out to all the dream, all the dreamers on behalf of, of all of us that are still dreaming. Right on. I tell you that all the people out there that are still sleeping. And never dreaming. Wake up, it's time to dream. It's time to live your dreams. It's time to open up your eyes and look up at the sky and believe that the day is, is blue again and we live in the war. So everybody, please join me in welcoming Gigi Gorgeous. Hey, what's up? <laughs> Here even in the rain, even though I did my hair. <laughs> I'm so honored to be here, and I'm thrilled to be a, a part of this amazing ceremony. I mean, Venice Pride is the first one of all, and I mean, it's raining and we're all together, but we've been through much worse, and that's what's most important. We're standing together, and it's all about the love and support today. And I'm here with amazing Mike Bonin. I love him so much. Hello? <laughs> test, test. One, Does anyone want me to speak or no? <laughs> Should we just get to lighting the Venice sign? Yeah? Okay, let's do it. All right, everybody, for the first ever lighting of the Venice Pride sign, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Well, that was certainly fun, and that was Venice Pride with our own Matthew McLaughlin. Is L.A. exploding with little prides? It is, yeah. Venice Pride, downtown, proud L.A., whatever that thing was a couple proud. weeks ago. It was proud, not proud. proud. I know, I know. That was all great fun. But you know what's more fun than that? What? He's sitting right in front of us. Yeah. It's Justin Sayre, live and in studio. Hi, everybody. Hey. So you, I know. You, you do so much. How do you describe yourself? Because we gave you like nine titles in the first mm -hmm. introduction. Oh, my. I mean, I... I'm a writer. That I'd probably say that first, and Primarily. then you know, kind of, uh, I don't know. I think a writer with a, a strange Edie Beale persona. You know, like that's, <laughs> that's the person I you're looking get for. Out of the house. You know, that's all I can say. <laughs> no, I'm a writer and a performer. I, you know, I love sexual outlaw. That makes me feel much more dangerous because I'm not at all. I'm just like, oh well, smell you, Nancy Drew. Well, but you are beginning the seventh and final season of the yes. meeting of the International Order of Sodomites, which oh, yeah. first of all raises the question, am I a member? 
Oh, we can sure. talk about that. Okay. Yeah, sure. And this is I, in New York. I've just met you, but I guarantee you've done some sodomiting in your day. <laughs> I don't think my mother is listening, so I'm yes. I'm sure. It's, yes. it's a broad definition when we get down to it. Yeah. But that is, unfortunately for all of us here, that is almost a New York institution yes, now. Yes, yes, So indeed. for those of us who have not had the pleasure... Uh-huh. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, the International Order of Sodomites is a centuries-old organization (laughs) promoting the lives and legacies of the LGBTQ community, of which I am the chairman. So every month for the last seven years, we've done a monthly meeting where we've celebrated a different gay icon, we've talked about gay politics, we've had the best of Broadway and downtown performance artists kind of come and, and be part of our show. And it's been an amazing trip and journey for the and everybody involved. It's It's been a wonderful time. But you are bi-coastal. I am. So does that mean that the meetings might be held in L.A. at some point uh, in time? No, they, we had one or two out here, which were very nice, and people seemed to like them. But no, I'm, I'm retiring. Well, I'm retired. Where did you have them when they were here? We did them at the Bootleg Theater. Oh, yeah. yes. So I, I, and the people at the Bootleg have been so great to me. We did a reading of a play of mine actually at the Bootleg a couple last year about uh, gay bars in the 1890s in New York, which was really fun. And uh, yeah, so uh, I've done a few out here, but I think I, I've retired. I've retired. I know, I know, I know. The cool thing is, is that you can see a lot of your pieces from the meetings oh, yeah. on YouTube, which yes. I had a, had great fun just going to your channel and oh. watching them. And as I was watching you, and you do just fabulous comic routine but I couldn't help this is something I've sort of wanted to ask kind of every comic that I like I don't think it's possible to be a good comic and be stupid Um, but there is definitely a sort of you're kind of a cut above you've got literary references arcane cultural references do you ever worry that the audience just isn't going to get it no I don't care I mean that's kind of the joke. We have a joke at the shows. If you don't get the, re- if you don't get three dre- references in that's a row, you get to drink. <laughs> I'm in until you get another reference. and just, just laugh along. Catch on. But I also I think a lot. Buy, you buy a lot on the fact that I have a silly voice. So if I make a Martha Tilton joke that two other people get, you're like, oh Martha <laughs> Tilton, that sounds funny. <laughs> Who the hell was she? No one knows. Well, now when you did it here, did you find the audiences were were different? Because- uh you know, L. A. L.A. you have to impress in a different way. And how is that? Uh, I find that L.A. kind of, you know, because especially comedy out here, which is like a sport. People follow it like baseball. It's a blood sport. Yes. So you have to be like, hmm... They're, they're a little hesitant at first, where New York's like, oh, you're going to make us laugh? Thank God, because we just watched some lady slip around on butter for an hour. <laughs> you know, it's like, at least you have clothes on and you're not painting yourself with menstrual blood. We're so pleased. We're so pleased. Oh, we're over that. Yeah, CLA's like, oh, yeah. come on, chuckles. <laughs> yeah, that's so nice. Tell us about your pilot, you know? It's That's terrible. not the only thing that you're doing. When we, <laughs> no, when we no, asked certainly. you, so what are you up to? And it was like this litany of oh, things. Oh, sure. So you're a writer for Two Broke Girls. Uh, Two Broke Girls, You yes. have a fabulous blog called... I don't have oh, a Oh, no, blog. excuse me. What? Pod- podcast. I, have a pod- I meant to say podcast. <laughs> 
Oh, I don't have. Yes, I have a podcast. Walk. It's a, a called Sparkle and Circulate. Yes. And how long have you had that? That's uh, over a year. That's such a great name. Did it just come to you? Or? No, no, no. Actually, one of my producers said it. He's like, well, you know, it's advice. Because, you know, I love when people bring me things. He's like, I think Elsie DeWolf said it's it's the great thing to do at a party, a sparkle and circulate. And I thought, <laughs> oh, that's magic. <laughs> you know. Elsie DeWolf. Elsie yes, DeWolf. Yes, exactly. We'll just leave that there. Mm-hmm. You wrote a young adult novel yes. called Husky that yes. was released last year. Uh-huh. And the second one comes out in the following year. Okay. Is, is that a YA novel as well? Uh-huh. It's it's a it's a going to be a series of four books, so there the second one comes out. And why this particular genre? Cuz you oh. don't strike me as a YA author. No. First, no. First uh, well, in a very funny turn of events, my friend uh wrote the gay version of Mad Libs. Oh. And he said, oh, will you come and do a Mad Lib? We're going to do this live event for this gay version of Mad Libs. Will you come and do this event? You, you're funny, and I'm sure you could think of an adjective. And I said, oh, could I? <laughs> and I went, and his editor from Penguin was there and said, Justin's really funny. We should talk to him about writing a book. So uh, they did, and then I sent in a, a sample chapter of kind of a YA novel, and they signed me to a three-book deal. So. Had you been wow. working on that chapter, or no. did it just come out of... No. I mean, how did you go, okay, someone wants to do a YA thing, I think I'll just write a chapter here. Like, what was your Yeah, I just thought, well, I th- well, they said oh, about like a young kid, like a young gay kid, and I was mm-hmm. like, Sure. <laughs> I don't know. You know, there's a lot. Poverty will will put you in a lot. So <laughs> I was just like, sure. How many? Six pages? Tomorrow. You know, like I just wrote that. And then it kind of was a discovery of, oh, this is how this works. How did you have to change things for, say, an adult audience? Well, I just, I don't think, I think people have the same ideas. I think it's how, like I have. My great my grandfather's has a sixth grade education. Mm-hmm. So when he says good, that means marvelous. You know, it's like you just it's where he's operating from. So a lot of times, and I think especially for writing this YA book, it was really not about dumbing it down. It was just kind of giving giving the voice references and an understanding of where he was. So he's talking about like existential crises, but he's just trying to get through study hall, you know. And Lord well, knows just, we have existential crises oh, absolutely. in study hall. That's no I joke. was really after I finished. I was like, "Wow, I'm a 12 year old still." <laughs> I was terrified. Well, and this is an age group that considers "Flowers in the Attic" a rite of passage, which oh, is one sure. of the most disturbing things I've ever read. Deeply disturbing. Oh, now one of the things I encountered when when. Yes, researching you. Oh, my. I, I love this Night of a Thousand Judies, but what is it? Oh, so when we first started the meeting, it is a show about community. And we thought, and when I say we, I'm talking about my producers, Adam Rosen and Dan Fortune, who I work with pretty closely. Uh, we thought that at the end of every season, we would do a charitable event uh, to benefit a local New York City charity uh, in something that was geared towards LGBT rights or LGBT um, equality. And what we came up with was this Night of a Thousand Judies where we get lots of different Broadway people and, again, performance art people, lots of different folks, illustrators, and we do an evening of all Judy Garland music with two skits that is a two-part parody of one of her movies. So we've done things from The Harvey Girls with Everett Quinton, which was amazing. <laughs> or uh, we did uh, last year, I think we did Meet Me in St. Louis, which was Meet Me in Detroit, which was <laughs> great. And we kind of do 
these little sketches and we raise about, I think we've raised over $200,000 for homeless wow. LGBT youth in New York. What, what is the most bizarre Judy-related act that has performed in this? Um, well, you know, we kind of... Uh, I, what what's always been a big part of the meeting and a big part of Judy's because of that is it's never the shows while they're while they're tributes and they celebrate a gay icon, it's never about imitation. So we nobody comes dressed as Diana right. Ross or anything like that. We really want artists, queer artists or or artists that are aligned with the community to present what that artist means to them. So we've had people who. You know, uh, a wonderful singer, Carol Lipnick, came in and played uh, a harmonica trumpet and did a Judy song. My friend Brendan McLean, who's a, a perf- uh, singer and uh, pop star from Australia, came out with no pants and played the ukulele. As you so, do. As nice. you do. So it's it's all over the the boards. And, uh, and it's magic. It's just magic. I wonder if we've had Brendan on this show. We've had an Australian pop star. Uh, you might have. There's only the one. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you might have. He's very good. <laughs> it's a very large country. Oh, I know. Well, sure. Now, you mentioned your voice. I saw uh, someone described your voice as being straight out of the MGM finishing school for girls. Yeah. Yes. And I did think that immediately. I thought, oh, oh sure. you say, I, I feel like I'm watching a <laughs> black and white movie. Uh. Um Oh. You are a throwback. You do oh, love yeah. those movies. You've you've got those references. Sure. I know it's very for the queer community, there's always been, you know, Judy Garland and all the glamour of that. But for you in particular, what speaks to you about that era or those images? Well, uh, I grew up with those. I was I, I hung around with a lot with my grandmother when I was growing up, and that's why I had this voice. I had a stutter growing up, so she sent me to her friend who had a finishing school, and they taught me how to speak well. So you really did. Oh go yeah, to a so I really did. Like wow. Um, but uh, you know, the thing about it, I think, when you're growing up in a small, I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, and it was this exciting world that you were going to enter into of be what it meant to, I I kind of equated it with what it meant to be an artist what it meant to be you were going to be interesting and know things to say at parties and you know kind of have a, a charmed life in in a different way it wasn't about money as much as it was about a certain kind of experience or a certain kind of style and I've been very lucky even when I haven't had money or when I have had money to kind of always carry a sense of oh well we're going to have a we have great style about it, regardless, you know, um, because I, I, to me, how somebody walks into a room or how somebody presents themselves is is can be magic. And I think that a lot of LGBT people, because we have to learn how to present ourselves in the world, can take that on as yet another canvas to kind of spread some of their own magic. And and before we run out of time, you and Abby were discussing the queer collective before the queer oh, artist yeah. collective. Queer artist collective. This the is quacks. exciting. <laughs> oh, yeah. The quacks. Yeah. yeah. Tell us about the quacks. Well, uh, you know, I I was really lucky to come up in New York, where there were places like Joe's Pub, like uh, the Duplex, and and these wonderful areas where artists, performance artists, painters, all these kind of different people could meet and compare work and and there was much more of a community than I have found in New York doesn't mean there isn't a community uh, in LA doesn't mean there isn't a community out here but I think it's it's harder to kind of bring those folks together so uh, I've come up with this 
plan of kind of having these monthly or bi-week, bi-monthly meetings of quacks, which would be a uh, forum for gay art, queer artists to bring their work, to have it talked about, to present in it in whatever form it finds itself, whether it's dance or or photography or theater, anything that can anything that people want to bring, and really kind of connect it with a community so that they they understand what other people are doing. There there can be a transference of ideas, and they feel supported. Uh, because I think, especially in LA, what I found being out here is it's so easy to think you're not doing anything good because you know you're trapped in your apartment, but you really are. I think there's a so many people I've talked to and seen out here who are doing amazing and interesting work that I, I just wish more people knew about it and could offer help or, or concern about it. Well, so, it's so hard to get feedback in the Oh, absolutely. Community. Really honest feedback, too, is really hard. So it, if I can do anything to present that, I really want to be involved in that. So this would be your personal finishing school to help oh, other absolutely. queer people <laughs> move, walk but into a room with style. you don't have to talk like me. You can just <laughs> show up, do what you have. Do. And but even I'm, better if you do. I'm, yeah, right. <laughs> I know. I want to talk like you now that I'm hearing. A it lot of people do. It's very disturbing, and it's <laughs> ruined many of my relationships. I'm so sorry. Because about three months in, when I'm like, "Oh, you sound like me now," <laughs> and there can only be one. Get out. You know. <laughs> All right. How can people find out what you're doing? What you're doing what, next? You can follow me on Twitter at uh, Justin Sayer. S uh, C H M and Facebook is a really good way to communicate with me. Uh, uh, yeah, that's where I really put up a lot of stuff, and uh, my website's getting a whole rehaul, so I would look back in September. And do you have a YouTube channel? We do, International Order of Sodomites. And that is Sayer, S-A-Y-R-E. If you're yes. looking for just, Justin, there's a lot of great stuff. It's really oh, entertaining. Oh, thanks so much. And sodomite is S-O-D-O-M-I-T-E. In just in case you didn't remember. <laughs> there's so much more I want to ask you because oh. I think that uh, you are a true artist. And oh, I appreciate thanks. having you well, here. Well, I'm always around. I, you know, I'm very, I don't talk to many people. So anytime you want me to come back, I'll just talk and talk. Oh, well, we thank- can do that. Oh, good. I'm right around the corner. Woo. Thank you so much for coming because if you were lucky, you might have caught him at Uncabaret when it was held at the downtown library. And I remember watching that man and thinking, he is genius. <laughs> and, and now you're here in front of us. Hell, oh, that's uh, sweet. So thanks. thank you so much for coming. Of course. Thanks for having me, everybody. Well, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride, director Michelle Marie Gilkison, board operator Federico Garcia, and our Rainbow Minute producers, Jed Proctor and Brian Burns. You can find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. And before we go, two things. Everyone at IMRU is deeply saddened by the passing of photographer, author, and a true LGBT trailblazer, Mark Thompson, at his home in Palm Springs on Tuesday of Unknown Causes. He would have turned 64 this week. Also, IMRU will be off for the next few weeks during the KPFK Dog Days of Summer Fun Drive, or whatever they're calling it this time. But we'll be back September 5th. That's fund, not fun. Fund, yes. And we'll close with a song called Elegance from TV producer and trans icon, Our Lady J. Good night. Good night. Who swallowed her sharpest sauce Just to show you that she had
fresh performance taste and ignorance.